Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Grant Brissett. How you doing, Nate? Doing great. Glad to be back. I hope you got the show last week on the comprehensive case for our faith. Today, we're going to be unpacking something that we talked about last week, Grant's favorite topic. The resurrection, the case for the resurrection of Jesus. I absolutely love this argument. (laughs) So we're approaching Easter, and this is on a lot of people's minds, and we are going to be doing an event on campus where we challenge people to disprove the resurrection. I've never done this before, but we're kind of stepping out in faith and doing a disprove the resurrection night. Sounds crazy, but before you quit listening, hear us out. What we want to do is show that you can't disprove the resurrection, and if you can't disprove the resurrection, why not believe the resurrection actually happened and that Jesus' offer of eternal life is valid? And one of the reasons this argument is so good is because the argument gets right to the foot of the cross. The argument for the beginning of the universe, the design of the universe, the morality of the universe, point to an incredible creator, but not specifically the Christian God. They point to theism, but not Christianity. The cross Now we're right at the foot of the cross and the heart of Christianity itself. Absolutely. So what we want to do today is we want to look at theories that have been proposed to refute the resurrection. I'm going to list a few of those, and then we're going to look at the same criteria that historians would look at today when they evaluate any theory. Then we're going to compare them to the data that are pretty much universally accepted among scholars concerning the resurrection. So here are some of these alternative theories. Some people might say the resurrection didn't really happen because the body was just stolen. Others might say the body was moved. Others might say Jesus never really died. He was put in that grave. He came back. He was thought dead, presumed dead, but he actually kind of miraculously came back and uh, got out. Others might say Jesus had a twin brother. Some might say Jesus was never even buried in the first place. And probably the most famous right now is mass hallucinations. Some people would say the disciples hallucinated that Jesus rose from the dead. The other 500 hallucinated. The women hallucinated. Paul hallucinated on the road to Damascus. You can see where I'm going with this. I think it's a hallucination myself. (laughs) I know Grant well enough to know that's a joke. (laughs) You have to know me to know it's a joke. (laughs) So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the data that Gary Habermas has compiled for the resurrection, and we're going to see if any of these alternative theories actually satisfy all the data according to modern historical processes. Hey, Nate, before we get started, I kind of want to start and end with this idea that Christianity boils down to one three-word question. That's it. Is he risen? Is Jesus risen? If he rose from the dead, Christianity is both possible and probable. If he didn't, it's time to go get pancakes and sleep in on Sunday. That's it. (laughs) 
And Paul said that. Mm-hmm. Lest you think that Grant is sacrilegious, <laughs> Paul said that if Christ isn't risen, our faith is absolutely in vain. Right, right. The resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, he says it in verse 14 and 19. Our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So Paul himself gave Christianity the condition of falsifiability. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, game over. Yeah. Now, people have said that to me in the past. Nate, what would cause you to walk away from Christ? Mm. And I can't think of anything other than the resurrection. Let me just be real honest. I hate the idea of talking donkeys. Okay? (laughs) When I read about a talking donkey in Scripture, I think, man, I hated it on uh, Sheck. And I I don't like the idea. It sounds crazy. It sounds preposterous. So it's easy to read things and say, well, is my faith based on this? Right. If my faith is based on this, am I believing, you know, a fairy tale? Right. Now, here's the reality. If Jesus beat death, I don't care what's in the Bible. I'm following Jesus, right? He is it. Now, lest you think I'm sacrilegious. No, (laughs) that's, I I agree, right? When you said that, I just laughed because my problem is the talking snake. Exactly. I I was with somebody and, and there was an atheist that said, oh, you believe in a talking snake, and he ridiculed Christianity. And to be honest, it does make me feel a little stupid on the inside. If I'm going to be really honest, I don't like the idea of a talking snake. But I'm with you. If we believe in a God that banged the universe into existence, resurrections and walking on water, talking donkeys and snakes are nothing. Yeah, and now here's something I got to just clarify what we're talking about here before the audience freaks out and never comes back. <laughs> They're gone. I'm not saying there wasn't a talking donkey right. or a talking snake. Right. I'm just saying my natural, modern, American perspective makes that a hard pill to swallow. Mm-hmm. But since the resurrection actually happened, I can swallow that pill. Now, here's the reality. My kids love talking donkeys. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. They don't right. love the talking snake so much. Yeah, <laughs> the resurrection's heavy, but a talking donkey, that's cool. Now, if you're God and you're trying to reach all people, because Scripture's clear that God wants none to perish and he wants all to be saved. If you're God and you're bringing humanity to, to a point in history where they could find the one way of salvation, would you not miraculously make a donkey talk or this or that? To be able to reach people that might not be reached otherwise, I'm thankful for the children's stories and in my kids' children's Bibles that God miraculously made happen to capture their hearts at a young at a young age in a very incredible way. And I'm glad he did it. So I believe God can do miracles, and I believe that he can make a donkey talk or any other host of things if he wants to, for his own purposes, he can. And because the resurrection, I am very comfortable believing him on some of these smaller issues that might be hard to believe from a modern American perspective. Nate, that's that's a great point. And I think also I've kind of fallen in the trap of chronological snobbery because I'm a modern American, scientific-minded, um, educated person. I shouldn't believe in these things. But I've really been challenged in the last few years with things like dreams, people that say they came to Christ, especially in the Islamic world, Mm. through dreams. I mean, there's dreams in the Bible, but we have a society that takes pride in science. Mm. But I think there's almost an overemphasis, and I have to be careful that I just don't get prideful that I'm too smart to believe that. Science is good. Scientism 
There you false. go. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All right. So let's look at the historical evidence for the resurrection. This comes from Dr. Gary Habermas, but there's mostly universal agreement on these 12 data points. Let's take them one after another. I'll do one, then you can do the next. Sounds good. Number one, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Number two, he was buried in a private tomb. Number three, his disciples were initially discouraged. Number four, Jesus' tomb was found empty shortly after his burial. Number five, the disciples and numerous others were convinced they saw the risen Christ. Number six, their lives were completely transformed, even willing to die. Number seven, the story of the resurrection took place very early, at the beginning of church history. Eight, their testimony and preaching took place initially in Jerusalem. This is the one place the resurrection could have been refuted. Number nine, the gospel from the beginning centered on the resurrection. Number ten, Sunday became the primary day for gathering and worshiping. What would it take for Jews to switch to Sunday from the Sabbath? Something amazing. Something amazing. Sure. Uh, number 11, James, the brother of Jesus, who was skeptical of him while he was alive, while Jesus was alive, became a believer because he saw the risen Christ. And number 12, Saul did also. So those are 12 points that have been referred to as the minimal facts. These have nearly universal agreement among all scholars, both Christian and secular. Now, what theory would best describe those data? That's what we're looking for. When historians do history, they consider about five or six different, different ways of looking at the evidence. The first is explanatory scope. Which theory explains the most data? So let's just look at it really, really quickly here. Uh, the body was stolen. How many of those data points does that one uh, answer? Well, I think it explains the empty tomb. That's the only one I can think of. That so, Right, right. So what doesn't it tell us? Well, it doesn't tell us why the disciples were willing to die for a lie. It doesn't tell us why Paul converted in a separate incident later on on the road to Damascus. It doesn't tell us why his skeptical brother James became a believer and leader in the, in the New Testament church. You can go on and on and on. It doesn't explain any of the other data, nor does it explain how a Roman guard guarding that tomb could have been overpowered so the body could be stolen in the first place. I mean, this theory doesn't hold a lot of water. And as far as explanatory scope, it's pretty weak. Absolutely. Now, it was the only, correct me if I'm wrong, the only alternate theory offered in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's kind of interesting about that, the only alternate theory presupposes an empty tomb. So the fact that this is the only criticism in the Bible that's mentioned by the Jewish authorities actually implies one of the data points that the tomb was empty. Absolutely. They wouldn't come up with this story if the tomb had Jesus. And again, all they had to do to annihilate the Christian faith was produce the body. Which they couldn't do. They couldn't do. So even in that day, as in our day, this would not sufficiently explain all the data of the resurrection. Wouldn't explain the eyewitness accounts. Wouldn't explain... So many other things. Right. Next is the, the body was moved. Let's say the Jewish authorities moved the body. How many of the minimal facts would this theory 
So again, again, I think this is just, it explains the empty tomb. Why was the tomb empty? Well, the disciples or somebody moved the body, but the same thing. It doesn't explain the conversion of Paul, the conversion of the disciples, their willingness to suffer and die. Um, it doesn't explain the conversion of James. It doesn't explain any of the other things other than the missing body. And in this one, it's actually quite amazing. If the body had just been moved, the Jewish authorities would never have claimed that it was stolen. They could have just produced the moved body. <laughs> same point, same right? point. So these are two, um, I like these two together as far as talking about them because they're they're pretty similar. Yeah, exactly. They, at best, maybe explain one of the 12 data points, and they surely don't explain the rest. Now, what about swoon theory? Jesus was presumed dead, put in the grave, but came back on his own and walked out alive. Now, this one just has all kinds of problems, so I'm going to have to cut this short. But I've gotten to hear Dr. Habermas in person explain a couple things about this, and he explains crucifixion. And what he does is he talks about a German scientist that literally offers students or people to come get crucified. Now, he quickly says it wasn't a stake or anything like that. He puts them on a belt with their arms out like a cross or upward like on a, on a, in another position. And he finds out that if you have no support with your feet, if your legs were broken or there was no footstool either way, that even the strongest man could not stay conscious for more than 11 to 12 minutes because, and I actually tried this at the gym. It's kind of funny. <laughs> Put your hands on the, the pull-up bar together when you're out of breath and just let, just let yourself hang and see if you can breathe. You'll find that you have to actually pull yourself up to breathe. So on the cross, it, the swoon theory claims that Jesus swooned. He either passed out or faked it and they thought he was dead and they took him down. The problem with that is Roman soldiers were under risk of death penalty themselves if they allowed someone to live, and they also saw death all the time. Here's the truth. If Jesus was not moving on the cross, he was gone. That's it. And the swoon theory has a lot of other problems. How are you going to escape the burial material, the rock, the soldiers? And then let's say all of that's true. Let's say all of that is true. You, if Jesus survived the cross, survived the tomb, made it to the room with the disciples, if I'm one of the disciples and I see Jesus come in, you know what I'm saying? You need a Band-Aid? Yeah. I'm not, not your risen Savior. <laughs> no, I'm not changing my life around to die for the idea that he resurrected if he came in that state. Yeah, you could go on and on, but this just, just does not explain very many of those 12 data points. Mm -hmm. Maybe two at the best. It might explain an empty tomb. Right. It might explain the eyewitnesses, but they wouldn't be eyewitnesses of a resurrection. Those people would have known very clearly right. this wasn't a resurrection. Okay, now what about Jesus had a twin brother? This one's always funny. I've heard this before. <laughs> the twin got crucified, but not Jesus. So right. That, yeah. So here's one way. I, I steal this one shamelessly from J. Warner Wallace. I heard him share it this way. Um, and if you read his book, Cold Case Christianity, he explains the difference between possible and reasonable. And, when so, and I've only had one person mention this to me. And all I did was say, you know what? I will believe anything is possible. I will believe it is completely possible that Jesus had a twin brother. But all I ask is that you give me one shred of evidence for me to believe that. I'm going to believe what's more reasonable, not what's just possible. Now, of course, this wouldn't account for any of the data, really. You could say that it accounted for appearances mm. of the risen Christ, but the problem is that everybody that saw the risen Christ would have known there was a twin brother and would have been thinking, where's your twin brother? <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> there wouldn't exactly. have been an empty tomb. There would have been a twin brother in the tomb. There would not have been changed lives. And I mean, honestly... 
James, the skeptical brother, would right. surely not have come to believe because of the resurrection when he knew it was just the twin that died in actuality. And if the twin was gone this whole time and unseen, let's just say, I mean, this makes for a really interesting novel with no truth to it, but an interesting novel. Let's say the twin gets um, hidden and he's away. How is he going to know exactly what to teach? I mean, the disciples have been with him for three years, walking, talking, and learning from him for three years, and you're telling me that a twin brother who has not been there at all is going to pull off the idea, the same ideas, the same magnificent sermons? So this is if the twin survived and Jesus died. Right. Of course, there's no evidence of any twin, there and it, it doesn't answer these data, but the other way to look at it is if the twin died and Jesus survived. Either way, this idea doesn't satisfy any of the data, really. No, I'm giving it an F. <laughs> Next one is Jesus was never buried in the first place. Now, Ehrman recently proposed this because the account in 15, 1 Corinthians 15, that famous account of the resurrection, says that Jesus was buried. It doesn't say in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. So Ehrman makes the case, since it doesn't cite Joseph, we can be confident he was never buried. Except for it says he was buried. <laughs> this, fall, this falls apart right away. Facts are stubborn things. <laughs> they are. Now, here's the problem with this. It doesn't explain any of the data, I don't think. Right? Right. right. It, I mean, it doesn't explain a burial. It doesn't explain an empty tomb. Right. It doesn't explain eyewitness accounts. It doesn't. It, it's kind of a worthless theory, and it betrays the ignorance of the position that tries to refute the resurrection. I think they're grasping at straws. I mean, I, I honestly think that as you look through these alternate explanations, you see that people want to avoid the most reasonable conclusion, which is Jesus rose from the dead. So we got one last final one, mass hallucinations. And this does a really good job of answering one-fourth of the data points. I'm not kidding you. The best criticism of the resurrection fails to account for 75% of the data. Interesting. Interesting. Good point. Good <laughs> point. The yeah. the best yeah. the critic has. Right. So it accounts for the appearances, possibly transform lives, and the story happening in Jerusalem. Like, a lot of people in Jerusalem saw this risen Christ, supposedly. Mm -hmm. It doesn't account for other things. It doesn't account for what we know about reality. And so let's just take it seriously for a moment. Let's just say that hallucination accounts for the disciples belief that Jesus rose from the dead they wanted him to rise so he rose from the dead well the first question is do people hallucinate and the answer is yes um, Navy SEALs and people going through military schools and Hell Week uh, have all kinds of stories of hallucination there's Navy SEALs that are in the cold water that haven't slept for days that claim they saw a train go across the water. There's people that say they hadn't see an octopus come out and wave. There's crazy hallucination stories. But what we know about these, these hallucination um, incidents is that they are, number one, one-person accounts. There are no examples of mass hallucinations. So, Nate, if I said, hey, I had a dream. I went to Hawaii last night and I was surfing big waves. Did you like it? <laughs> I mean, it makes no sense to say that we had mass hallucinations. Number two, they are single scope in nature. When those Navy SEALs saw the train, they didn't hear the train. When he saw the octopus, he didn't hear the octopus or interact with the octopus. When people that have been married for 50 years have a spouse die, they will hear them call him in another room. They'll think they heard him, but they won't see them and they won't interact with them. 
Well, look at the 12 biblical accounts of the appearances of Jesus. They speak with him. They hear him. They eat with him. They're invited to touch his wounds. It doesn't account for anything we know about reality. And then even if, even if the disciples who wanted, they didn't believe it. We know they didn't believe it. But let's say they wanted a resurrection and believed in it. You're telling me that Paul, who 100% believed he was serving God wholeheartedly and coming against Christians, had a hallucination on the road of Damascus, changed his whole life and became the enemy of all the people he respected. I'm just not seeing it. And then the the skeptic James, Jesus's half-brother, he converts. You're telling me he had a separate hallucination. I think this is something that, you know, if you're sitting around having some tea and coffee together, someone can say, well, what about hallucination theory? And that's interesting, but I think once you start investigating it, it just makes no sense when it comes to the facts. And it doesn't explain the other data, mm-hmm. right? It wouldn't explain an empty tomb. <laughs> mm-hmm. If they were all just hallucinations, the authorities could have said, well, right. the body's right here. He didn't right. rise from the dead. And so this is the best criticism out there, but it still fails to account for 75% of the data. Now, the best explanation for the data that covers all the data, we're just talking about explanatory scope here. The only one that covers them all is a real resurrection. Right. And the only reason you're not going to believe in the resurrection is because you don't believe in miracles. Now, I was on an airplane flight, and I find myself in these conversations. It was kind of interesting. There was a Ph.D. um, in neuroscience, and in about 15 minutes, I found myself surrounded by three fairly aggressive atheists. And when I mentioned this argument, they were quiet. They had no answers, but the only answer they could come up with is, people don't rise from the dead. And I quoted a very academic source. It's It was a, a cartoon satire on YouTube I saw. Lutheran satire. Lutheran satire. <laughs> it's the one with, with Richard That's Dawkins, right? And I forget the names of the yeah. characters. But Dawkins says, people don't rise from the dead. And so I said... Yeah, that's why it's such a big deal. I mean, there's 2 billion or so Christians on the planet. You can't just say people don't rise from the dead and make that assertion without looking at the evidence. Because the evidence says someone did rise from the dead, and there's no way to refute that evidence. Unless you say resurrections just don't happen. Now, that's the position of the biggest critic alive today, Bart Ehrman. Mm -hmm. He looks at all the data, and he concocts you know, kind of a a goofy theory, which he admits is a goofy theory. And he says, is my explanation here probable? He goes, absolutely not. But it's more probable than a resurrection because resurrections don't happen. Mm. Now, what we find here is what's called begging the question in philosophy. It's starting with a belief, ignoring the evidence, and then believing your belief. Mm. It's a logical fallacy, but it is the only way that people actually refute the resurrection in our day. I think the better way to handle the resurrection data is to do what Gary Habermas says, and that's to believe it's actually true. Now, we just looked at one historical method, the explanatory scope. Let's look at some others. Which of those theories explains the data in the best way? Which one has the most explanatory power? Again, there's only one, and that's the resurrection. It's the only one that would transform these lives It's the only one that would really create real eyewitness testimony. It's the only one that would compel Jews to switch from the Sabbath to Sunday for their worship day, etc., etc., etc. Again, it's the only one. 
And it's the most plausible. I mean, it surfaces from the data, and I look at that, especially with the hallucination theory, when we look at what we know about reality, what we know from the research and bodies of testimony and, and witnessing, we see that um, the resurrection would be the most plausible account. Absolutely. You look at it, this guy died by Roman crucifixion, he was buried, the tomb was empty, even though it had been sealed and guarded. Hundreds of people began seeing eyewitness accounts of this person. Those people were willing to die for what they'd seen. They switched the entire way they worshipped. They told the story, and the only place on the planet that the story could have been refuted, <laughs> even the skeptics came around to it. If you look at all that, you're going to come away saying there's only one plausible solution. Right, right. And we're skimming the surface because right when you mentioned the Jerusalem idea that that's where it would be disproven. I mean, also, I think people have heard going to church that women were the first to testify. Now, Dr. Habermas says it's not true that women had no vote, but they just didn't have a lot of weight to they their were. vote. But the example that I would say is if you were in the United States in the 1800s with slavery in the South and you were going to make up a story and there was a white slave owner, would he quote the slaves as witnesses? It wouldn't make sense if you were making up the story because he would know in a court of law, unfortunately, they wouldn't have as much of a vote. Mm -hmm. Good, good point. Okay, so plausibility, less ad hoc. This one's kind of fun. Basically, an ad hoc way of handling the data is just stringing together unwarranted hypotheses. That's like mass hallucinations. No mm -hmm. evidence of any such thing ever in history. But guess what? To get out of this, we're going we're gonna <laughs> to use it. But it only covers a few of the data, so we have to hodgepodge it together with other ad hoc theories. So you get a whole train wreck of hodgepodged, <laughs> awkward theories. That's a lot different than just believing the data seemed to say one thing very clearly, that there was a legitimate resurrection. That's what about right. the next one? Illumination. It sheds light on other areas. This one is, is pretty awesome because we see light being shed on other data with this theory. For example, we've talked about it before, but why would these people be willing to go to their deaths for this thing? Well, we can shed light on that. They knew that they saw a resurrected Savior. <laughs> right. Why did right. Christianity take over the first century world the way it did? A third of the world was was one to Christianity in that first century? Well, because there was a real resurrection. We start to see that this theory, it sheds light on the data. It explains the data. A mass hallucination doesn't. Right. And just to throw a side point in, I think that people don't aren't familiar with, is the idea that Christianity was born in a bedrock of hostility. They became enemies of the Jewish community because this was blasphemy to worship a dead Jewish carpenter that was crucified. It would be uh, ridiculous in the stories uh, surrounding him. And also it was sedition to the Romans. They didn't weren't, weren't befriended by the Romans because Caesar was God, and to have another king could have been blasphemy, right? And so this was the situation in the first three centuries. It wasn't to the advantage of people to convert. Now, you can make that argument later. You can make it for TV evangelists trying to get money from people. Absolutely, you can make it. But the disciples themselves, there was no motivation for money, for power, for relationship, or anything. Okay, the final is accord with accepted beliefs. Now, when we look at the accepted beliefs, all these data points that we've looked at, we know that a resurrection agrees with all of them. It's in accord with all of them. It's accepted as fact that the tomb was empty. The resurrection is in accord with that. Mass hallucinations are not. 
it's accepted as a fact that skeptics came to believe in their Savior. It is accepted as fact that the disciples that knew him best were willing to go on and face martyrdom because of what they knew they saw. If we look at the historical method and we look at the data that are universally accepted, we can come away with one thing. The alternative theories that try to refute the resurrection fall apart quickly, and the resurrection is the only thing that satisfies all the data that historians believe to be true about the resurrection. Absolutely, and so the most um, reasonable conclusion from the facts is that Jesus rose from the dead, And but you're not going to believe that if you have been talked out of believing in the supernatural. If you refuse to believe in the supernatural, you will not become a Christian. If you refuse to believe in anything but materialism, the idea that atoms and molecules, etc., are the only thing that exists, you will never become a Christian. And so my humble request of people would be that they open their minds. And people believe in spiritual things and spirituality in a lot of ways, but I think the well has been poisoned with Christianity. And I was told, I mean, I grew up in public school in California and went to, went to college there for a while, and I was told by professors, Christianity is just a myth. I only heard negative stuff. I ne never heard anything positive, but I think this evidence is really powerful because now I can take the experience where I met Jesus Christ and I, have, I can love God with all my heart and all my mind. Absolutely. No, you can come to Christ today, and I would encourage you to do that. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, believe in him today. Communicate that to him in prayer. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Please be my Savior and Lord. Well, you can get this show and all of our past shows at GodSolutionShow.com. And I really do hope that you'll keep listening and keep sharing the show with your friends as well. Absolutely. Christianity boils down to one question. Is he risen? And he is indeed. Well, like we always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. Have a great week. See ya. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.